0: Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of the fathers, has given you. You should not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at baal peor for the Lord, your God, destroyed from among you all men who fought Baal of Piro, but, but but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. See, I have taught you, you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, and for, for that... For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who when, the, who, when they hear the great statues, will say, "Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great, for what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon Him?" And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous that, as the law that uh, is set before you today, this is the word of the God.
1: Amen. Thank you, Dean. Good morning. If we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And we are wrapping up our Sunday morning teaching series today where we've been studying the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. We've been looking at what that means for us individually, what that means for us as our families, and what that means in worship. And for today, we're going to do something challenging. We're going to look at what that means for us as a community, for us as a collection of individuals and various family units. Now, why would I say that that's going to be challenging? You and I live in a world that teaches us to ask questions that are self-referential. You know what I mean by that? We ask questions that always come back to ourselves, that always think about me as the most important person. And so we learn to ask things like, what's in this for me? How will this benefit me? Why should I practice hard? Because it'll make me a better player. Why should I study hard? Because then I will get into a good school and get a good job. Why should I get married so that I won't be lonely? Why should I work hard at my job so that I'll get promoted and make a lot of money? Our world teaches us to ask, what's in this for me? And it teaches us to be motivated to do things by asking what benefit I'm actually going to get out of this. We live in that world right and that world influences us and then it influences us when we come to Scripture and we tend to ask the same question what's in this for me what does this have to do with my life how does this apply to me how is this relevant to me and so we approach Scripture in general and we'll pay attention we'll try to apply what we read but often we're asking how does how this gonna make my life better if we don't see that we tend to pay a little less attention to various portions of Scripture because we think, well, that's, that's not worth as much. If you've grown up in that world like I have, if you've been influenced by that world, today's passage might be a little harder because, frankly, the passage is not about you or me. This passage is about what we need to do, but if we do it well, we are not the primary ones who are going to benefit from it. Someone else will. And that's a hard sell in our culture. It's probably, I think, a hard sell in any culture. So to help us understand then why this passage is important, even if it's not about you or me, we're gonna start this morning first by seeing who this is for, and only then will we talk about what is it that we're supposed to do. So just two main things today. Who is this for and what is it that we're supposed to do? First, we're back in the book of Deuteronomy, and if you were with us a couple weeks ago, We learn there that the book of Deuteronomy is the organizing document for Israel as a nation. Now, up to that point in time, Israel was a people group. They were an ethnic group. But they were not one that was able to develop their own culture. Instead, they were enslaved. They were oppressed by another nation. They lived under the laws of Egypt. And they had to conform their lives to that culture and to that nation. And so they had grown up being shaped by the laws and the culture of Egypt. They were Abraham's descendants, but they lived under Egypt's authority, not under God's. They had to pay attention to Egypt's voice, Egypt's word, not God's. Now they're about to become their own nation. God freed them from Egypt's power. He's giving them a land of their own to live in. And so they're going to have very clear geographical boundaries now. They are going to be a national entity. You can visibly see the nation. At the same time that God gave them that space, He also gave them these laws in Deuteronomy that would define the culture that would be in that space. And you hear those two things come together, laws and land, in verse 5. Moses says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. You're about to have land. Now you have statutes and rules, and you are to live those statutes and rules out in the land. That's going to give you both your identity and your culture. God goes on then. Here's why this is important. Verse 6. Keep them. Keep the statutes and rules and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So why should the people of God obey what God has said? Why should they listen to his word, live this way? Because it'll have an impact on their neighbors. It'll affect the people who are watching them, who are observing how they live, in other words the reason given here for them is not because this is going to benefit you but it'll benefit other people it'll be for those who don't yet know god now that's not the only reason that god gave his commands to his people we saw that in deuteronomy a couple weeks ago the primary reason that we learned there is that we would know how to live with him right his commands reflect who he is they tell us what he values they tell us how he himself lives And since he's entered into a covenant with us, you can think about that as he marries us, we have to know how to live with him, how to please him, how to bring him joy, how to enjoy the relationship that he's bringing us into. That was why we heard he had given us rules and statutes. That's all still true, but it's not the reason that he gives here. The reason for why we live a certain way, listening to him, is so that will impact the larger world. See, Israel now is, as a nation is going to have neighbors around them, neighbors who are watching them. But they're going to have more than just neighbors watching them. They're going to have people traveling through. The land of Israel is just a tiny strip of land, but it's the only land connection between Africa and Europe and Asia. It's the only way that you can get from Africa to those two other continents, Water is in the way on one side, the uncrossable deserts on the other. And so there are going to be these stationary neighbors who are watching Israel. There's also going to be people traveling through, getting an actual taste of the culture there. And as you keep reading Scripture, you realize that God did this on purpose. tells us in Ezekiel chapter 5, God says about Jerusalem, I've set her in the center of the nations with countries around her. And he goes on to talk about the reason was so that they would live out my laws and commands. They didn't do a great job at that. But the surrounding nations were supposed to see them as they kept God's statutes and laws. Nations are supposed to go, wow, that's different. That's not how we live. They have different approaches to life, different values, different attitudes, different practices, their way of life is different from ours, and honestly, if we're objective, it, it, it's better. <laughs> they are a great nation. They're a nation that's just full of wise and understanding people. It, it looks like they figured out this living thing, and they're doing it really, really well. That's the payoff that God is after in chapter 4, that God's ways of living would be seen so clearly that people from the outside would notice. And they would say, there's something different here, something that makes them great. Not great militarily, not great politically, not great economically. They're not great innovators, agriculturalists, inventors. They're great at being wise and understanding. They're great at knowing how to approach living. They're great at knowing how to deal with the problems of living. They're great at building a community that's good for every single person. Moses underlines that in verse 8. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so what? So righteous as all this law that I've set before you. It was supposed to be obvious to outsiders that the way God's people live is righteous. It was supposed to be obvious that his way of living produced a better life for each individual nobody's cheated nobody's devalued supposed to produce a better life for the community as a whole that the way that the people will live with each other is blameless righteous that people will treat each other well they'll feel like they've been treated well god's people living out god's commands the ones that embody his values That was supposed to be a demonstration, a lived example, an apologetic. The reason for why his rules and commands were so good. It was a way of saying, we really should adopt his authority. His authority is is great. It was a way of comparing his authority with everyone else's. Because you realize that every nation, every culture, every human being has a belief system, a a system of beliefs about what is good, about what is valuable, about the kinds of goals that you should have. And those beliefs get expressed then in principles. When you're in a nation, they then get codified in statutes and laws. And those govern what you should and shouldn't do. They express the belief system. Now, it's pretty clear that not all belief systems are equal. Ancient Egypt's beliefs were not equally good for everyone. The Israelites really suffered there while Egyptians prospered. In that sense, Egypt's statutes and laws were not righteous. And you can find that difference, that disparity today. It's the same thing. Some belief systems are better at creating environments that are good for the people to live in, and others are not as good. And one way that you can compare belief systems is not saying, well, that's what you believe, this is what I believe, but you can compare them by asking, is the society as a whole better off or worse for the people who live in this belief system as it is for the people who live in this other one? That's what God is setting up here. He's setting up a comparison, a lived case study that's going to demonstrate the goodness of his beliefs and laws. And he's inviting that comparison. He's inviting people to compare. This is the way of life that my philosophy of life produces. Come and see. Take a look at it. You have to notice here how humble God is. Right? God's omnipotent. right? He has all the power in the world. He could come down and say, this is the way that it's going to be. I'm in charge. You have to listen to me. And God doesn't do that. He's not interested in coercion. He's interested in persuasion. He's drawing people to himself. You think about the craziness of this. These are the people who have rejected his authority, who don't want to listen to his word. Instead of a rebuke, he gives an example. That's his intention. That people would come in and see how good what he says is that they would have a reason for wanting to live underneath his authority, a reason for wanting to to listen carefully to every word that comes out of his mouth. And so he puts his people on display, on purpose. And he says, now, everybody, here's how good my way is. Watch. As my people do what I say, it will become obvious that they're wise in understanding. It'll be so obvious that you'll notice and that you'll say, this is a great nation. Now let me take just a two-minute aside here to say that that's still God's agenda for his people. There can be sort of that disconnect for some of us. We think Old Testament is uh, something that happened earlier and New Testament is different. And Jesus tells us, actually, no, that it's just one story. That's John chapter 5. He says, it all points to me. This is the, the way that everything that God has been doing since Genesis on is, is moving. It's, it points to me, and then everything else builds on me. And so, what do you get in the Old Testament? You get this very long account of how God is entering into and restoring his universe. It's a universe that turned away from him, and he does not abandon his universe. Instead, he wants to have his glory seen in it everywhere, he wants it visible so. That Uh, He wants visibly seen that His will in heaven is now done here on earth. And the way that God goes about that restoration work is in stages. Scripture calls them covenants. They are different promises that God gives to His people at different times that unpack a little bit more of what He's doing. And those stages, covenants, don't get rid of the earlier ones. Instead, they build on each other. To set it this way to to some of you, as we've talked about baptizing your children, what do you see early on in the Garden of Eden? Right after Adam and Eve reject God's authority, God reveals everything that he's going to do next. He reveals the entire gospel. He tells them that a human being is going to come at some point to crush Satan's head, even though his own heel is going to be bruised. That is the whole gospel, God's entire plan to rescue humanity and the cosmos from evil. But it is super compressed. It's, it's in this very hard, tiny seed form there. And it takes time, centuries, millennia, to develop so that you start to see the, the nuances and the richness that God intends and that he builds into that. It's a little bit like the difference between an acorn and an oak tree everything about the oak tree is encoded in the acorn but you don't see it in its fullness until what until you give it time and then over time you'll see more and more and more of the tree coming out that was encoded in that acorn It's similar to hearing the story then that unfolds throughout the Old Testament it starts very small God promises to Abraham that I'm going to bring a nation out of you that's going to bless all the other nations. You hear that Abraham's family then grows into its own people group. Then you hear that God rescues them. Now in Deuteronomy, you hear that he's giving them a key role in making himself known to the rest of the universe. And each of those stages don't replace the earlier ones. They build on those earlier ones and they get larger and take up more and more of the universe. In Deuteronomy, God is establishing what? An identity and a culture for his people. And he's telling you that there's a purpose for leaving them here on this earth. And he's telling you in that moment what his intentions are for you, for the modern church, for what they are for all of us together. Now, we're at a much later stage of the oak tree than Israel was in Deuteronomy, but it's the same tree. We're not in a different tree. We're just at a later stage of the development. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 and 8 tell us that we're connected back to Abraham. It tells us that those who have faith in God's way of saving people are the true children of Abraham. That he's our father in the faith he's our spiritual ancestor which means that we are part of his family and so what scripture tells us about the people of God back then also applies to us in some way Deuteronomy tells us what God intends for us as his people just as much as it, t- it tells us what he intended for the Israelites now Does that mean that we should try to create our own nation that we should have our own geographical boundaries establish our own rulers and then try to live out all of the civic laws that you find in deuteronomy no jesus told his disciples not to collect themselves in a nation he told his disciples to go out into all of the world he told them your stage of the oak tree is bigger if you're thinking now in small geographical terms you're missing the fact that I now am the ruler of the universe and and that I now own all of it and I'm sending you out into all of it and so we have a different intention we're supposed to go out rather than waiting for people to come in we're to think globally not to stay focused on some small geographical area that's why we're emphasizing global missions next month like Esther just announced to us that's why you need to be involved in some of those activities Because what's on God's heart is the rest of the world. And by going through those activities, our hope is that what's on God's heart will be a little bit more on our hearts. Jesus sends his people out to the whole world, but the point is still the same. It's that others might get to see what a human being looks like, acts like, who's trying to live their life under the authority of the word of God. Okay, you ask, uh, does that mean then that all the ceremonial aspects of the law that you find in Deuteronomy, that we're supposed to do all of those things, the pay attention to the clean, unclean laws, the, the sacrifices, the religious festivals? No, because what? Those, do, those point forward to Christ. And Jesus fulfilled all of those things that they pointed forward to. Those things were to help us understand what our need is. They were to help us understand what it is that Jesus came to do. Now that he's come to do that, if we're going to go back and, ta- and try to live all those things out, it's like us saying what Jesus did is not enough. We don't try to enact the civic laws. We don't enact the ceremonial laws. But the moral parts of what God commanded are still in play. Things like the Ten Commandments, how those get applied. Those things are not fulfilled because they're based on what God values and on how God loves. And so those parts of what he said are still the authority that we live under as his people. We still have no other gods before him. We still don't murder, still don't steal, still don't lie, don't covet. Why? Because God doesn't. He doesn't treat people in those ways, and therefore we don't treat people in those ways. And so the bigger picture of what God intended for his people is still true for you and me today. That we live our lives according to what he says. And we do that in full display in front of our neighbors for the purpose of them getting a chance to see how good God is as we live out his word. So what are you seeing here then with the role of God's word? God's word is to shape all of our lives in such a way that it makes him known to our neighbors. It reveals him to other people through his people. You're that visible letter that God sends to your neighbors. In that sense, every one of us, every one of you, may we're all missionaries all the time. We might not ever go overseas, but we have that same missionary call to live out God's word in front of the people who don't yet know him. That's the connection that Israel's neighbors were supposed to make. They were supposed to understand that these statutes and rules were not things that God's people worked out on their own or or, or that they had developed through trial and error, but that these things, the way that they lived, were tied back to the God who loved them, the God who cared for them. And it was that close relationship with God that everybody else was supposed to see. They were supposed to see that Israel did not feel like they were alone in the universe, that they were just left to drift or fend for themselves, but that they had something special. They had a God who loved them, like gin lettuce in songs earlier today. That verse 7, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? God took an active role in his relationship with his people, and if you hung out with his people, you could sense that that's something that your neighbors co-workers people you go to school with that's something that they should sense from you as well the sense that you care about what God says because you know that he cares about you now what God, what is God doing here he's tying his reputation and he's tying his evangelistic strategy to his people, to how well they live together with each other. He's telling you and me that how we respond to him and to his word isn't just for us. It's not for our sake only, but it's for other people. That's for the people around us and that it's for him, that it's for his glory, that it's a visible display of how good he is. And so if you and I really hear what he's saying, we're going to buy into a world that's much bigger than ourselves, much bigger than what we can get out of it. we'll, We'll stop asking that question, what's in this for me? And we'll start asking, who else can benefit from the way that I live? How can I live in a way that's good for other people? Not so that they're impressed with me, but so that it's actually for their good. Do that. Have that attitude in life live that way that will stand out in this world. People will notice and it'll start to give them a glimpse of how good God is. That's point one who this is for. Point two what are we actually supposed to do? It's very simple just two things live visibly and talk regularly. Live visibly talk regularly. Verse six Keep these statutes and rules and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Take the living and hearing separately. Where, Where are you supposed to keep and do these things that God says? In the sight of the peoples, That doesn't mean that you live this way to show off or that you only live this way when people are watching. That was what drove the Pharisees, if you remember. They wanted attention, they wanted to be seen and noticed. They were invested in building a reputation for themselves. They were not focused on the good of their neighbors, they were not focused on the glory of God, but they took what God said and used it to draw attention back to themselves. It's that self-referential thing we talked about at the beginning. Jesus called them hypocrites, so clearly that's not what God has in mind here. What does it mean then to keep and do these things in the sight of the peoples? It means that you refuse to accept a dichotomy, a difference between your public life and your private life. It means that you live out publicly the same things that you say are important to you privately. You choose to be an open book, to let people see how you live so that it draws attention back to the God who loves you. And so, for instance, you choose not to steal even when you can get away with it, and you are willing to have that be public. And so you don't hide money from the government on your taxes. You are open and honest with them. You don't stuff your backpack full of sugar packets at the coffee shop. You don't see how little work you can get away with it your job, because you're thinking that's actually the company's time. I'm not allowed to steal from them. I'm not allowed to take uh, company supplies like they're for my personal use either. You don't steal in public, even when everyone else is. Or you honor your father and mother. You respect the people that God's put in authority over you. Teens live that way, and that will get people's attention in this world. But you realize that that's not just for students, it's not just for children, it's for all of us because God puts that honor, father and mother, and then unpacks it over the rest of Scripture so that you understand this is how I'm supposed to respond to all of the authorities that God's put in my life. And so everyone is to honor, to respect those who are in our government, even when you strongly disagree with them. It's nothing less than stunning that in Romans 13, Paul says... Respect your government when Nero is the emperor. And you realize our calling is to respect those that God puts in authority over them. Disagree with them, sure, but do so respectfully. Live that, live your faith in the sight of the peoples, and that will catch people's attention, especially this next year as we go into another election cycle. Or stay faithful to your spouse, not only externally, obviously you don't sleep with anyone else, but don't even let yourself do so internally. Don't covet someone else's husband or wife. Don't wish that you had someone else that you don't have. Don't let yourself daydream about what it might be like to be with someone else. Don't talk about how hot someone is at work or at school. Live that in this world, stay faithful Stay faithful to the one you promise to be true to. Create that space where they feel safe, where they feel secure, where they feel valued. Do that, and you will catch people's attention in this world at this time. Or take your Sabbath. Rest one day in seven. Refuse to overwork, refuse to overrelax. Don't be driven, don't be self-indulgent. That will stand out in a world that cannot figure out how not to fall off on one side or the other. Live your faith publicly so that it honors God, and people will see that. It will amaze a world that knows how to tear itself apart but doesn't know how to fix itself when it's broken. Now, does that mean that you have to be a perfect person in order to carry this out or that you have to have the perfect family, the model family, one that impresses everybody with how well put together you are or how great your kids are? No, that's not what this means. It means that people should be amazed as they see what you do when you don't have your act together. When your kids aren't good. Because all of this covenant that God gives to his people is under the umbrella of love. Every single way that he interacts with us is through love. And so he does tell us how to live well, but he also tells us that we can turn to him when we haven't lived well. He tells us there are ways to restore the relationship when we break it. And as we relate to others like he relates to us, it tells people around us, this is the God that we know. This is what he's like. When you treat others like God has treated you, you don't ignore the bad things that they've done against you, but you deal with them in such a way that says, I really want what's best for you. And I deal with you in love, not holding things against you. People will be amazed. So that's first, live visibly. Second, talk regularly. God expects not only that people will see how you live, but verse 6, that somehow they're going to hear of all these statutes. Now, what does that mean? That means that there's some kind of interaction going on there, some way that they will have heard the reasons for why you're living like you do. Maybe they're close enough friends with you, and so they hear you talking with your friends about how, we, how, how, do, how do we live as faithful believers in this world at this time. Maybe they overhear that, or maybe they ask you directly. You've had that experience, right? When you're traveling, you bump up against something in, in a different wor- culture, a different country that, that is not the way that you would do it back home, and so you ask. You're not challenging. You're just curious and so you say, you know, hey, I, I noticed that everybody goes to bed early around here. Why is that? Or everyone stays up all night. Why, why is that? Or how come no one else is eating lunch today? God expects people to have natural human curiosity as they see you live. And the way you live tells them what? You're approachable, that you're welcoming the question, and you'd be happy to talk with them about why. And so they end up hearing about these statutes and these commands, the word of God that he's given to you to live a certain way. I remember a time when these two things, living visibly and talking regularly, really came home to me. It was back in college. And I started to realize that I had two different answers to exactly the same question. When people would ask me, how are you doing? I had one answer that I would give my Christian friends, full of faith, and here's my interactions with God. And I had a second answer for my non-Christian friends. And I would change my answer based on who was asking the question. I was very convicted by this at one point and realized that I needed to be the same person with both sets of friends. They need to be an open book and live out my faith in public, regardless of who I was hanging out with. And so I started giving the same answer to everyone who asked, the answer that I used to give to my Christian friends. That did not make sense to everyone. That led to some very awkward conversations. I was incredibly clumsy at this, probably still am. But doing that has led to some really good conversations over the years as I talk with people about what it means to live out my faith with people who don't yet share it. That's the missionary impulse that God built into his people's identity at the time that they were actually becoming a visible entity. And if you read into the New Testament, you realize he hasn't taken that back. He still intends that for his church. You hear that in places like First Peter. Chapter 2, verse 12 tells us, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may what? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Live out your faith in public. Live visibly so that others can see how you and I live. If you do that, chapter 3, verse 15, you should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you For a reason for the hope that is in you live your faith out publicly people will notice and they'll be curious they'll ask that's our calling as god's people it's always been our calling but what do you what do you do if you're like me if you haven't lived this out very well What do you do if it's not been all that important to you? What do you do if, like me, you've been more self-focused or more scared or more interested in going under the radar in in not being asked anything, not being noticed, certainly not being noticed for anything being connected to God? Where, Where do you turn? To what do you turn when you've not been living this out? Or where do you turn when what people have seen come out of you does not reflect very well on God at all? Where do you turn to get the power to do this, to to live for God's glory and for the good of other people when that just doesn't seem to be all that exciting to you? You turn again, verse 8, to the God who is near you whenever you call upon him. What does that mean? It means that you trust his love. You trust that he still loves you. You trust that you haven't lost his love or his help. And you trust that what he has started in you, that plan, is really enough to change you so that you will become someone who loves just like he does. God makes very explicit in the book of Deuteronomy three different times that your life with him is all about his love. He tells the people in chapter 4, verse 37, that he didn't choose them because they were a strong nation. In fact, they were a weak nation that he had to use his strength to rescue from a stronger nation. He's telling them they only had an existence because of his grace, his involvement. In chapter 7, he tells them he didn't choose them because they were more numerous than all the other peoples. He says, actually, you were the fewest of all peoples. They didn't stand out and impress him. They didn't impress anyone else. but They chose them anyway. In chapter 9, he tells them that he didn't choose them because they were more righteous than any other nation. In fact, he said, you're really pretty rebellious, tells them that he didn't decide to use them because they were so good at being good, tells them flat out each time, I did not choose you for any quality that you have, for anything that you might bring to the table, but I chose you because I love you, not because of anything in you, but simply because I love you. Your greatness, that other people might notice, that's not from yourself. It's not from anything that you bring to our relationship. Your greatness is from me and from what I bring to you. Why is he giving them the land? Why is he giving them this incredible opportunity to show his glory? Because he loves them. That's it, full stop, that's the entire reason. Not because they deserve his love, but because he loves them despite what they deserve. Not because they're lovable, but because he's loving. He chose them in spite of themselves because he loves them. That's why he gave them the land. That's why he trusted them with his plan to reach the world. And that's why he's willing to tie his relationship to them, his reputation to them in, in the first place. And that gives you and me hope. Because if you haven't done anything to earn his love, Then there is not a single thing that you can do to lose it either. And so, when you see yourself like me not living the way that he's told you to, you can rely on him to still love you, even when you don't think he should. That's what you have to hang on to when you look at your life and you're not very proud of what you see, when you're not very proud of how you've carried out his mission. You hang on to having a God who is still near to you whenever you call him. Why? Because he decided to be. And that's exactly what will tell people about how great he is. Because every human being knows how to earn love. (laughs) We all know how to work really, really hard to make someone else like us. Every human being knows that when you do something bad, really bad, it just makes sense that other people won't like you anymore, that they won't love you, that they'll turn away from you, cut you off. And God says, that is not how this relationship is going to work. I'm not tying my love to anything in you or to anything that you do or to anything that you don't do. I will continue to love you even when you don't live up to what I tell you to do. And it's that kind of love, that experience of living in that rock-solid, secure place with our God that will change you. And so he was a God who was near to his people, so near that they could call on him whenever they needed to. Only as you read Israel's history, you realize that that wasn't enough. wasn't enough to change them. They didn't turn to him. They didn't call on him like they needed to. So what did God do? He came nearer. God in the flesh, Jesus. You could see him. You could touch him. You could have a conversation with him. And that wasn't enough. His people rejected him as God's Messiah. And so what did God do? He did more. He came closer. Because what we really needed was not his words outside of us, but what we needed was him inside. We needed his words inside, changing our desires, giving us resources, giving us that that experience of love. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 tells us. You read there that it's the love of Christ that compels us. Be careful how you read that. That doesn't say it's your love for him that's, that compels you. It's his love for you. The love of Christ compels you. It's his love that moves us, his love that guides us, that directs us. It's the love of Christ inside of us that now sends us out. Passage goes on, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all for a reason. So that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. What's going to change you so that you embrace this missionary call? Trying harder to love Jesus? No. It's Jesus' unending love for you. It's the love of Jesus that moved him so strongly that he saw how you and I could not get free of our selfishness, could not get free of our self-absorption. And so he did the thing we needed. He died for all. So that what? So that we died. So that we were cut off from that self-reflective way of thinking. He died to give you resources so that you should no longer live for yourself. So that there is no longer just that one voice, what's in it for me, but now you're thinking, who else is out there? How can I move toward them? When you don't have that interest and that passion, go back to him and say, I need to be loved again. I need that love in me right now. And then I want to love other people in the same way that you've loved me. And I want to do that in a way that brings you incredible glory. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did not content yourself with just giving us words outside of ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that you did not simply write words on stone, but that you wrote words in our hearts. Thank you that you've changed our hearts so that our hearts are not hard, but that we long to hear your words. We long to be loved by you. Lord, fill us up, please. Send us out into this world joyful so we have just that longing, that hunger that other people would taste what you've given to us. In Jesus' name.